Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we get Connolly Foundation President Tom Riley's countercultural ideas about how to truly give well. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm very happy to have as our guest today, Tom Riley, president of the Connolly Foundation, which was founded by his grandparents, John and Josephine Connolly, and is located uh, outside of Philadelphia. And is also one of my favorite foundations in the whole world for reasons which no doubt will become clear throughout this conversation. Besides running the Connolly Foundation, Tom is a contributing editor to Philanthropy Magazine, He is a member of the Strategy Committee for the Alliance for Charitable Reform and a board member at many nonprofits in Philadelphia. From 2001 to 2009, Tom was Associate Director of the White House Office of National Drug Policy. Perhaps we'll have a chance to chat a little bit about that. All of which is to say, welcome, Tom. How are you? Hey, Jeremy. Nice to talk to you. It's always good to catch up. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. I think you're the first person uh, that I've spoken to so far on this very young podcast who um, is the is, is the descendant of people who started a foundation yeah you know, this is this is a family foundation started by your grandparents um, so that's going to be an interesting perspective for our listeners to get tell me um, you tell us about your grandparents what led them to create this foundation and how did you come to be involved with it well, uh, you know, everybody loves their grandparents, I hope. But, uh, I, you know, mine were, they were quite interesting people. Uh, John Conley was the, both of them were children of Irish immigrants here in Philadelphia. Uh, grew up in very modest circumstances in North Philadelphia. Uh, John Conley was a really interesting guy. A lot of people who made big fortunes either had uh, a business that took off, had a particular niche, or they had an innovation. He was just a really creative thinker and a, and a very smart guy. Uh, he made his money and he dropped out of school uh, very early, didn't finish high school, uh, went to work uh, in a, a sweeping in a box factory. Uh, and he worked his way up and uh, started his own. Again, his businesses were always very unglamorous. He had a box company and then a can company. Um, but both of them just grew and grew. I ran into Peter Lynch, the uh, founder of uh, the Fidelity, inv- famous Fidelity investor, a few years ago. And he got a big smile on his face and he said, John Conley was my all-time favorite CEO because he was completely focused on shareholder value. And he believed in steady, continued growth and everything went to shareholder value. So it was a core holding of, of Peter Lynch's and others. He wound up making a lot, he wound up making a lot of money. And I think he wound up making a lot more money than he planned or intended to. Uh, he was always a very charitable person. Uh, their family uh, charity was woven into it. It's a very strong Catholic faith. But the charity that he was involved with was always very person to person. So people talk about what were his goals for the foundation or what was his vision for the foundation. I, I, I it's, it's somewhat prosaic. I don't think he really had one. I think his, his vision was you're supposed to help people around you. You're supposed to be a kind person who helps those in need. Uh, and his uh, the foundation for the first 20 or 30 years of its existence was his checkbook. Uh, I think that his vision for the foundation was, was as I said – uh, his lawyer said, you give away a lot of money. Why don't you start set, it up, set up a thing called a foundation to do it? Uh, and that's what he left his money to. So that, that actually kind of created a, a really uh, a, a, an unusual dynamic because his two daughters, his two oldest daughters took over when he died. They were extreme. One was my mother and one's her sister. And they were extremely conscientious. Like they, they, they loved their parents. They were very close with their parents. Um, their parents were a huge part of their lives. And so they ran it with a very strong, again, it's interesting. It was like a sense of donor intent without calling it donor intent. You know what I mean? 
And the two, but since there were two of them, they were like checks and balances on each other. If one said, oh, I've got an enthusiasm for this, the other would say like, yeah, but I think dad would really hate that. Okay, then they wouldn't do it. Or they'd say, oh, let's say no to this. This seems too, too, uh, th- this thing seems too, too soft or something. And the other one would say, yeah, but you know what? Mom would have really believed in this. And they'd say, okay, that would do it. So they ran the foundation for 30 years with an extremely conscious sense of what would their parents have cared about or not cared about. The thing was, they had kind of, I guess you'd say like a common law approach to it, which was like they, uh, it wasn't written down. I mean, there was a book about, about him and they had lots of notes and they were incredibly conscientious about keeping old letters. If there was anything that articulated a sense of donor intent, it was something that they shared with everybody. And, but there just wasn't a whole lot of that other than knowing their personalities and values. So when I came on, the first thing I did was, um, to, uh, have a first ever strategic plan, but to really try to make the strategic plan a codification of donor intent to make, to say like, okay, no fooling. Let's do the work of what, what would donor intent look like? What, what would be in it? What would not be in it? And then everybody puts their hand on the document and agrees. And now you've got something that if something, you know, people who never knew them were running it, they would know what they were supposed to be doing and they won't get off donor intent. You had moved beyond the phase of informal or tacit knowledge, I guess, uh, personal knowledge, you might say. We're moving past it. He died, John Conley died 30 years ago, and uh, Josephine Conley died 20 years ago. So there are older people who remember them. And again, you know, Jeremy, it's so funny, you know, what is donor intent a moment in time? You know, is, is it what somebody thought when they were 85 and failing or is it what their values were while they were, you know? So, so when you talk about knowing somebody and and that being the connection to donor intent, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing too, about like, like, Oh yeah, I met him when he was a really old man, as opposed to knowing him in, uh, in, in a more vigorous sense. And people who had that are now getting to be too old, you know what I mean? So, so uh, we're very soon going to be at the point where nobody knew either of them while, while they were very vital. And that's, that's when you have to have written things. That's when you have to have things that everybody agrees on. That's not, you know, scraps of paper and hearsay and stories. That's right. I mean, it's a much more complicated philosophical question than it is often presented as this question of donor intent. I mean, it, it does it. There's a sort of tacit, uh, um, presumption in the phrase that, first of all, that we just have one intention that's not a sort of complicated and ambiguous and complex and, and contradictory, whatever, right? I mean, we're, we're weird beings. Uh, and then it doesn't also move through time and change yeah. through time. That's and, right. Um, so I, I think what you're saying just raises us a lot of questions. And I can see why you have to eventually kind of try to write it down because – um, as the as the personal knowledge recedes, um, you you really are just running on fumes at that point. You know? That's exactly and, it. And now 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 to take it to another generation and another generation, and then it's fumes. It's the rumor of a suggestion of a fume. You know. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> right. so and, and if you don't kind of consciously and intentionally do that, it's not going to get done for you. I mean, like the world's not going to come in and say like, oh, don't don't pay attention to my needs. Let's go back and focus on what your donor's intent was. Like it's your job to do that. What, how do you keep it? So you write it down and it just seems like the structure of, of things dictates that you have to get to that point. If you want to sort of achieve any kind of fidelity, how do you keep it from becoming too brittle, uh, too, uh, you know, um, formulaic? That's a, that is a great question. And it, it really, it, it, it really intertwines with the question of a mission statement. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, uh, I was on a, a panel years ago uh, about crafting mission statements for foundations, and it was really interesting. The person who led it, um, she uh, she presented a bunch of, you know, uh, fa- I think five mission statements from actual mission statements from foundations. And then she asked everybody in the room which ones she liked, they liked the most and which ones they liked the least. And the ones they liked the most were these like really – you know, poetic, inspirational, you know, we're going to change the world or, you know, saving hearts and minds and and everybody liked them. And the one that they liked the least was a really boring one. And it was, we support nursing colleges in the state of New York. (laughs) And then 
then she went through this whole thing about like how you use a mission statement, what it's for, how people, you know, th- does that help people send in appropriate proposals or inappropriate? How does it do for board dynamics? What does it do for hiring? Went through all this stuff. She had everybody vote on it at the end. And the one that won at the end was we support nursing schools in the state of New York. Because it was clear and simple and understandable. Clear, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and donor intent's a little bit like that too. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm thinking of a foundation that uh, they, they have for donor intent, this huge tome that was written by the donor, but it's, it's like the size of the Bible. I mean, there's, you know, there's so much stuff in there. It's hard to see kind of what isn't in there. You, you need a bunch of scholars to figure out what is in donor intent and what's not in, in a practical way for you to do your job. So what we're trying to do is to, um, and a couple foundations have done a great job with this actually, uh, of how do you turn donor intent into a couple practical, as you said, not too brittle and prescriptive, but, but meaningful, not, airy fairy uh, stuff that could apply to anything, uh, but tr- turn it into a few things that you can actually apply to programs that you could that that, that are that are go no go for proposals that come in. Uh, so, so that somebody mm-hmm. would say, "Well, obviously we're not going to do this because that's donor. You know that that would be against donor intent." Or people on the outside might say, "Oh." I didn't realize that you might be interested in funding my thing. It looks very squarely in your donor intent. Yeah, it's a. Uh it reminds me of the saying um, personnel is policy is, is the other thing I'd probably want to keep in mind if I were in charge of trying to maintain donor intent somewhere that um, no, uh, all, everything you say seems like a really good technique and like the kind of rubric you were talking about there. But in the end, if my people aren't aligned with uh, the donor, like the similar values, character um, and that sort of thing, um, it, it's, it's just going to be friction all the time. Whereas 100%. Are, You're exactly yeah. right. I mean, I know, you know, very well, the example of the Daniels fund, um, which is a, a, a well, tell f- that story, Tom. Yeah. Sure. People- well, Bill Daniels was a really interesting guy who had very specific values, very specific vision for his foundation. Uh, and after he died, um, uh, the foundation really went in directions that were extremely contrary to both his values and his vision. He didn't have children, so uh, he didn't have somebody there uh, guarding it. Um, uh, Linda Childears came in uh, as this thing was going way, way off the rails, and she did a heroic job of bringing – of wrenching the organization back to donor intent. The experience was so scarring that she implemented really terrific and thoughtful ways of just that, which is people, you know, read the donor intent statement. They sign it before they become employees. They read it before the board meetings. There are kiosks physically in the foundations with pictures of Bill Daniels and quotes of his about his values. So the organization is suffused with his like living presence of his values, but that, that really didn't happen by accident. That happened because somebody fought to make it happen. Fidelity uh, isn't easy. Yeah. Is the answer. Yeah, well, Jeremy. Can I, let, me, let me let me go back to the thing you were saying about personnel, which is really you know yeah. there's there's a it's you know I, I you and I I think have talked about this before too. There's a really interesting um, uh, sort of twist. There, there's sort of a conservative-ish narrative that what happens Mm -hmm. is there's a donor who has a specific set of values. They leave the foundation without clear enough vision. And then it gets quote unquote taken over by liberals who steer it in a different direction. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen. I'm saying that's a very familiar narrative. My, my critique of the narrative is it doesn't, that's not like a, a, a story of a bunch of intrepid pirates who took over foundations. That's just the way of the world. It doesn't, I mean, anybody who comes along and is a foundation professional is going to impose their values on it. We, you and I would, anybody kind of by human nature says, I've got an opportunity to do good here. What's good? Well, good is what I think is good. So I'm, that's what I'm going to do. So in the absence of an affirmative statement that we do X, Y, and Z, you and anyone else will supply what what that direction is and what those values are. So if you want your values to continue or the values that you've been entrusted to continue, remember, foundation don't have board of directors, they have board of trustees. Uh, if, if Your job is to um, 
find out what that or, or to really make clear what that donor intent is and to have it explicit. And if you don't, then the, it's not an evil band of pirates who's going to st- steer the foundation away. It's everyone because that's just the way of the world. That's right. That's right. It's a uh, building all these sorts of protections uh, to sort of rein in our natural lack of humility. uh, It's incredibly important. That's exactly it. It's human nature. Yeah. Let's let's talk then about what X, Y, Z is for the Connolly Foundation. I'll I'll read your mission statement, but then I want you to just elaborate on it and tell us what the foundation does, how it does it and how it might be different. Um, inspired by its Catholic heritage, the Connolly Foundation's mission is to improve the quality of life in the Philadelphia region by supporting charitable organizations in the areas of education, human services, and culture and civics that strengthen resilience and help people to flourish. That's pretty, uh, that's close to the nursing colleges in New York. That's a great compliment. Thank you. Because we, you know, we, we've had other ones and I still think we can do better. I mean, I still think we can do better because what you want to have is something that anybody reading it could say, oh, well, that's me. I mean, it, it, let's put it this way. It should be falsifiable, right? It should be falsifiable. Like, uh, that's not me or that is me. Um, at both as a potential employee, both as a grantee, as a trustee. I mean, it should be something that you, you get and you either want to be a part of or you don't. Um, and, uh, uh, that and I think that that has a lot of fidelity to John and Josephine Conley's. Like I said, they didn't articulate what their vision of the foundation was, but that's what their charity was like. And so, tell me how that. So, how is that playing out in practice? How what um, uh, what sorts of groups are you all investing in? And, and and more importantly, because you and I have talked about this before, but how do you, what's the Connolly Foundation difference, if you could define that in terms of how it goes about its grant making? Well, I like to think that one of the ways that we're different is, and being local, of course, is a huge, huge benefit and blessing. Uh, but one of the implications of being local is uh, locally focused is, and it's an older foundation now. I mean, it started in the fifties. So, uh, by being local and by being around for a long time, it's very personal and human focused. Like we know that we're the grantees really well. We know not just the head of it now, but the previous one and the one before that and who the founder was, and they know us and we know the other organizations doing work in that field. And it's very human scale. Um, we don't use a lot of metrics and we don't use a lot of, you know, complicated analyses. I mean, I don't want to get in trouble by, by <laughs> no one from the IRS is listening, right? But we make a lot of the decisions based on personal knowledge of people and the work that they do. And we're very intimate with the grantees and they, they know us very well. And we know them very well. And that's, it, it makes our work, I think, a lot more effective. And I think it makes us a lot more you use the word humility, we then have the humility to work with them on like, okay, what to have a knowledge of what do you really need? Or what are the things that, that you're doing that really do fit in our area? And the pieces fit together a lot more neatly. Hey, this is an important point to make. I think I don't want to, uh, metrics and, and analyses are what you use when you don't have personal knowledge of something. I mean, exactly. that's the entire point of such things. It's to allow you to aggregate over many cases or to basically it's a, a shortcut to try to figuring out what's going on somewhere that you don't really know the people, the players, the history, the context, et cetera. So we shouldn't talk as if personal knowledge is less knowledge than the knowledge gained by a number. It's, it's almost not an exaggeration to say it's infinitely more knowledge. Right. I, I, I think so. And I hope so. I, I talked to a friend of mine, a colleague who works at a very large foundation that does international giving. And I think, and he's very conscientious and the foundation's very conscientious. I think they do a lot of good, but he was talking about how not only does he never uh, meet most of the grantees, um, it's third party people do site visits and do these elaborate reports. Um, and it's extremely metrics oriented, uh, and they're they're doing it out of a sense of conscientiousness, but he says that he feels no connection to the actual good that's being done. It's all very abstract, uh, and these are f- mostly fundamentally human enterprises. Uh, the idea of knowing the people too, uh, you, you know, there's downsides. It makes it harder to say no, right? 
Um, cause you, you know, then it, it's a lot of, it's not me, it's you conversations. And that's really hard for people that, you know, and, and respect and care about. Um, but on the other hand, uh, they know that you're still going to be there. And that, that's, that's a really special part too, is, um, that these, the, the relationships that are not transactional, um, if they get a grant or don't get a grant, you're still going to, and they're in your world, they're, you're still going to be, uh, working together in the future, hopefully. Uh, yeah, that's, them, yeah, so. uh, yeah, that's very much so. So that, that part is really, is really gratifying. And it's actually, it's, it's, it's a great way to get the trustees interested too. The trustees feel that sense of connection to the different nonprofits. Uh, and that also, I think serendipitous, serendipitously helps you kind of stay on donor intent and mission when it's not just seeing a bunch of numbers on a page and gra- lines on a graph. It's, meeting the kids who get the scholarships. It's meeting the parents of the kids. It's going to the human service organizations and knowing who else is on the board. You know, that, that sense of kind of intimacy and human scale makes the, makes the work much more real. I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit more right when we come back with Tom Riley of the Connolly Foundation. One second. here with Liz Pala. Liz is one of my partners here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Liz? Doing well. Thank you, Jeremy. Liz coming to us from the great state of Montana, Great Falls, Montana, to be precise. How's the weather up there? Beautiful. Uh, about 75 and sunny. How I wish I were there, as usual, except, well, except for six months of the year. To Liz, before you uh, joined us, you were at the William Simon Foundation in New York, uh, where you were a uh, program officer. Is that correct? That's correct. And then, of course, now you, you've worked with dozens and dozens of nonprofits and applying for grants. So you've seen both sides. So our question for you today, our practical question for you is, what's like one piece of advice, maybe something people wouldn't think of, uh, that you'd give nonprofits when they're applying for a grant? Uh, from a foundation? Well, it's hard to pare it down to just one thing, but um, if if my hand were forced, I would, I would say pick up the phone. Do anything you can really to have a conversation, kind of break through that perceived bureaucracy, that barrier, and, you know, build a personal relationship, talk to a person. You know, you don't want to stalk them, but uh, you do want to be persistent. Do everything you can to build a relationship. So, um, does that mean, uh, so let's say you've, you've sent a letter of inquiry. Um, so you're saying you should follow up with a phone call. Yes, Just you one? should. You know, try one. If that doesn't work, call a couple weeks later. Okay. How many? So uh, it's okay to call foundations. Yes, sure is. <laughs> and it's okay to call them more than once. That's absolutely true. I mean, sometimes that's the only thing that's going to, you know, help your letter uh, get get to the top of the pile of the things that are on their desk. I, we often say to people that the foundations are sort of looking for a reason not to have to consider you, right? Like or not to have for, not to have to tell you no sometimes. Right, right. So you really have to make yourself, I don't know, almost a borderline, not a pest, but you've got to be, you got to show you're really serious about wanting to um, uh, have a conversation. Absolutely. That's not a question. That's just a statement. But uh, you can say whether you agree with it or not. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I would say you know more often than not, if you can get someone on the phone or in a meeting, you'll get really clear guidance on what to do and how. You know, they're trying to make their lives as easy as possible, which means helping you do the thing that's, you know, going to help you fit into their guidelines and their boxes. Um, so they're going to tell you exactly what to do a lot of the time, and your job is really to take good notes and listen and then actually do it. Let's say I have a conversation. Let's say I now even have a relationship with a program officer at a foundation. How should I, how do I cultivate that relationship? I think it depends on whether you have a grant yet or not. You know, if, if you're still trying to get a grant, I mean, keep that relationship alive, do everything you can to have those conversations before you submit a proposal. Um, and keep take their advice to heart when you're putting that proposal together. I think after you have a grant in place, um, you want to just communicate. 
pick up the phone, meet with them, invite them to your events, invite them to your organization, do site visits, let them see your mission in action. Um, kind of internalize the fact that if the foundation is supporting you, they like your organization, they're rooting for you, they probably want to hear from you. Um, so don't don't wait until you have your renewal proposal due the, in the a week. Yeah. I mean, is it okay just to shoot them casual emails from time to time? Oh, absolutely. You know, sometimes those are the most effective and most personal things, you know, forwarding an email that has an update from your leader about something exciting that happened to you today. You know, that can be just fine. You know, hey, just wanted to hear this. Passing on a news article, you know, other things that are just informal does not have to require a ton of thought. You don't have to write a whole screed. just communicate. Not every, yeah, not every communication needs to be highly curated. Exactly. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's hard for a lot of nonprofit leaders to understand, as you and I both know, but it's good to have your perspective on it, Liz. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Take care. We are back with Tom Riley, president of the Connolly Foundation. Uh, Tom, you were just talking about how, uh, because of the very personal and human way in which the foundation goes about its giving, your trustees are involved in a, in a personal way. They're engaged affectively. Uh, not a word you use, but that's what it sounds like. Um, this reminds me um, of a distinction that you and I have talked about in the past between the charitable tradition, just charity and philanthropy, the philanthropic tradition. And the, the whole, of course, one of the whole points of charity in the, in the uh, Christian Catholic way of thinking about it in particular was that it changes the person who is doing the giving, right? In fact, that's the primary point of the whole thing is, like, is what it does for you. I mean, that's hard for us to sort of grasp now when we think of giving in such a technological way. But what you're saying about your trustees strikes me, you know, it reminds me that you all are sort of seem to be operating within that sort of older charitable tradition where it's, it's not just about making something happen in the world, but about um, making something happen for the givers as well. Uh, you're, you're completely right. Uh, it, it, that, that is a really interesting distinction. If you, if you'll remember um, throughout the nineties and the two thousands, the whole thr- thrust of uh, in the professional world of foundations is to move from the benighted mom and pop, you know, version of giving to people that 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 you know or care about, and giving, but to move towards impact and to move towards metrics and to move towards these, you know, kind of transformation. Exactly, and 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 every foundation is supposed to be more and more like a business, and that the more professional and business like you are, the, the better. I don't mean to be glib about that. I mean, there are foundation professionals. If that's it, you should take your work very seriously. You should use best practices from business or from other places too. Um, but it, you can lose a lot in the process, right, Jeremy? I mean, uh, you know, and what, what often, it, what, what happens too often is you, you lose the reason, as you said, the, the very reason for the giving you're losing in, in the, in the, in the relentless drive towards professionalism. Uh, so we, uh, we take a real, conscious joy in in um, the person to person part in in being sometimes uh, impulsive uh, erring on the side of being humble and generous uh, and uh, uh, one of the programs that uh, I know that you're familiar with but that uh, we our trustees just love actually my mother came up with this idea uh, years ago uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, way. yeah, she came up with it years ago, and she, and uh, it, it it's it's so small, but it it really brings a lot of joy. And it's it started out at Christmas time, though. Now we're doing it Christmas time and in the summer. And what we do is we identify people who work directly with the poor, like the poorest of the poor. Um, and um, they might be somebody who works in a human services organization. It might be a priest or a nun. It might be somebody who, you know, works at a homeless shelter. It might be uh, for somebody who works at a, at a very poor school. Uh, and what the goal is, is to, is for, is we give them $5,000 and say, and they don't apply or they don't even know it's coming. We just send it to them with a letter saying, we know that you work directly with people who are suffering at this time of year. Do whatever you think to do something for 
each of those people. And just the only thing we ask in return is don't use our name, but also um, tell us what you gave without, and without the names of the people. And it's, it's miraculous and it's beautiful. And sometimes somebody will say like, I know a, a, a family, a immigrant family that has the, the, the father's in jail and they have no money. So I bought them a month's worth of food or I paid their utility bills for the month or a guy who is an immigrant who, uh, um, does the delivery service, but his car's broke or his truck is broken and he can't, and he needed a repair. So I paid for his repair or there was a girl whose mom is in the hospital. So she was going to have Christmas alone. So I paid for her to be able to take a train to visit relatives. Uh, and, and it's, a modest program, it's a couple hundred thousand a year, actually keeps growing because our, our trustees keep saying, please do more of this. And it's just a great way of touching so many people in a, in, in a way that in the distinction you made before, that's just straight charity. There's no theory of social change to it. There's no impact. There's no institutions that will be different because of it. The people don't even know where the money's coming from. Uh, and and that's great. Yeah, <laughs> but it's but well, there is impact, right? There's somebody gets to eat. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. No, I'm saying there is no you know society isn't changed. You know, there the thing is that the person is helped, and it's and the, it came from a person that they knew who wanted to, and as far as they knew, that person's the one who gave them the money. Um, yeah, although society may be changed, I mean, we we uh, I mean, you're sort of injecting more love into the world. Exactly, uh, that's that, the goal. That may yeah. have a goal, and that may have an impact on society. It uh, seems to me like. I would say that's the esoterical, you know, the esoterical is that there's just more love in the world and more concern from one person to the other hand to hand, you know, as opposed to uh, a round number check to a large organization that we all hope will wind up something good will come from it. Or filtered through a bureaucracy. What I love about it is it's, again, you're leveraging personal knowledge. It's not these frontline work. You're not just going out on the street and handing $100 bills to everybody you see. You are counting on, you know, that these frontline, you know, selfless workers, uh, that they know who's uh, having issues, who's helpable and who isn't, who, if you gave them a $500 now would actually be a bad thing for them, you know, and their yes. souls for some reason. Um, and you're trusting in their judgment and in their knowledge. And again, it seems to me like that's, that's a very wise way to, to go about it. There's, there's nothing, uh, I'd be hard pressed for someone to tell you this is sort of an ineffective or, I don't want to say this sort of like a knowledge poor way to go about doing this. I mean, you're, you are leveraging really kind of very particular knowledge to know where a gift can make a difference that you could never do from central HQ. And that's, that's, it feels very against the current of the professionalization of incredibly against the current. Yeah. <laughs> it really yeah. is. But yeah. Do you know of anybody else who does anything like this, Tom? I, I don't. I'm sure there is. I don't. And one of the reasons that I don't is because each time I tell people about that who work at bigger foundations, they're like, oh, my God, I would love to do that. But there is no way that our fill in the blank compliance officer or our board or whomever would let us do that. Uh, but you're, you're Jeremy, you identified exactly where the where the choke point is for. I mean, and again, some of our boards say, like, why don't we do why don't we do more? Why don't we do a couple million into this? It, you can't. Because you have to know the people personally. You have like, and that doesn't like you don't find them online. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> yeah, it, that, that's what the work is. The work is going is spent is spending time to get to know people. Like it's like, oh yeah, that nun who helps the poor people. Well, how do you know her? How like sh- she's not a good, great marketer. She doesn't she doesn't promote herself. You have to do the work to get to know these people, and then to have the level of trust that's appropriate. Uh, that that takes a lot of legwork. And so, and that's, that's where our choke point is, is the number of people who we can know and can keep involved with. We did one thing different last year that I, it was a colleague of mine who had this innovation, which was somebody said, and they were right. You know, it was like a thunder, a thunderbolt, which was so a lot of these people were giving this money to everyone and they send these wonderful letters and it's great. We're actually kind of making them work. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's work for them too, to, to go out and to do this. And, and and I'm sure they're very happy to have the opportunity to, but that's, that's like a classic foundation blind spot. Like you think you're helping people, but they're, you're really telling them what to do. So (laughs) we did, and it's total 
classic found, and the person, their grantee always, you know, they might roll their eyes, but they're never going to say anything about it. So you wouldn't know. And that's why foundations develop such hubris and why people don't like dealing with <laughs> foundation people so often, though they won't admit it. Uh, but so this guy's innovation uh, was um, that uh, why not this year we send them the 5,000, but we also send an additional 5,000 saying we recognize the, uh, you know, this is also a tough time for you and your organization. So spend this for general operating expenses for whatever it is that, that, that you do. And that was totally out of the blue for them. And that created an incredibly positive feeling for oh, that and feeling. Of respect. Yeah. That's so great. Uh, that's a, that's a great innovation. That's a great idea that that uh, fellow had. Yeah. So, so, so we did that this year and we are um, f- during COVID uh, our board just voted last week that this year we're just going to double the amount that goes in. So, you know, we have to, we have to, we have to find more people. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but that's good. That's good. I mean, like, like if that's the work that you're doing, that's awesome. That's, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. You're putting your staff to work. I always thought it was interesting that, um, and I placed something like the Gates Foundation. Uh, and I'm sort of happy they haven't come up with this idea because it could become even more. <laughs> like I, I would have like a Gates Foundation storefront in every town in America. Yeah, and there, you could clearly do it. Like literally a storefront, like a, a physical place and um, really get to know exactly what's going on in that community and where I'm sure your $50,000 in that community could make a huge difference for whatever the Gates Foundation's priorities are um, rather than sitting in your glass box in Seattle. I mean, it's absolutely it's, right. Yeah. So it's the legwork. It is a classic foundation blind spot, as you put it. Um, it's, it's certainly not true of every foundation, but some where it's just, you stay in your office and it's, it's, it's people's job to come to you yeah. um, as Lady Bountiful to and plead their case. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the grant, and again, even without it being invidious, there are a lot of times the grantee is, the, is this proposal that you got and the level of polish and thoroughness in the proposal is the, is the determinant. And for a lot of people, for a lot of analytically minded people, that's a lot easier to deal with than the messiness of actual human life, especially poor people and people who are living in edgy or chaotic situations, like the actual people themselves. Um, you know, the smell of the sheep, it is, uh, it, it, it is, uh, uh, that's, that's, it's harder and messier. The polish in is, is in, in some ways a contrary indication to the need. Can be. Um, yeah, it can be. I mean, obviously not always, but if you only went by polish, you might, you might lose some, some opportunities to really, um, well, I'm intrigued by your storefront too. Let, let, I, let me just play with one aspect of that. I, 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 that's a really interesting idea. Let me let's put one part of it too, which is most of the people that are being helped by foundation dollars, they don't, the, the ultimate recipients, I guess you'd say, they, they, don't know, they, they don't know that they're getting money from, they don't know that the classroom they're in or that the teacher they're being taught by was trained through a Gates fellowship. Like they, they don't know the, the ultimate beneficiary or a putative beneficiary doesn't know the foundation or doesn't have reason to. And they certainly don't have reason to say like, you know what I'm going to do? I, 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 my car's broken and I need that to get to, to my second job to feed my kids. I'm going to go see if the Gates foundation or the Conley foundation or any foundation that they would have no, no reason to know that or no, no way of thinking that, but there is, you know, so there's a subsidiarity part to it too, that is, you know, but they might know that nice priest in the neighborhood, or they might know that person that time that they were down on their luck and they went to that, uh, to, they needed a meal and they went to that, that homeless place that the person was so nice and gave them a coat. They might know that person. So that's, that's the node where charitable people c- should really put their, their emphasis is on those people one remove from the target. That's right. You're right. Cause it's in a way, otherwise you're confusing. And that's why I use the Gates foundation as my example, yeah. uh, because tend to what it's sort of running their own programs in a way. Um, another, other, there is a sort of lack of humility otherwise, if you're not working through yes. the people yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Um, and again, it's frustrating. It's frustrating too. I mean, I, I we, we always, you know, we always, I, I don't mean to be, be trite, but laugh about sometimes, um, you, you can't get somebody to, to, uh, 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 these are people who aren't used to dealing with fa- foundations or aren't used to dealing with proposal writing. I mean, there are people who are doing the work 
themselves that they would have that it would never occur to them that that's something that's part of what they're doing what they're doing because they think it's right they're not doing it as like a business they're not prof- they're definitely not professional people they're they're do-gooders and they're drawn right. to it by mission and so yeah. they don't think to do they don't, they don't know how to they don't know how to submit a grant report a follow like what they no. and so that's you know we we have to we have to be the ones who learn to bend we have to be the ones who like help them rather than go like, well, that, that, that makes it easier for us. The people who don't know how to do this aren't going to do it. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting sort of mission uh, drift when people do think the other way that like you're saying, well, okay, I guess you're not going to get any money from us. Well, um, again, it's human nature. They, they, they take themselves out of the equation, right? I mean, like you, you don't know that they don't know how to do it because you never got their proposal. That's true. Yeah. If you're not out there yeah. figuring it out yourself for the legwork, Tell me about – so when you do come uh, beyond the, the Christmas and now summer thing uh, with $5,000, when you're just looking at uh, your grantees, you think about the ones that you're most excited about or that seem to you to be the most successful. Uh, what are the – are there common features of those organizations? Um, these mainly for you, they're local organizations. Probably not all of them are very big. Um can you think like two or three things like, yeah, they always have these, these characteristics. I, I wish I had a really quick answer for that. And I don't, I, I'd say again, we're, we're all prisoners of our experience and our experience is that we're really biased towards organizations that are person to person that are, you know, direct service rather than abstract people who are working with people rather than with an idea. Um, and, uh, so as a result, unsurprisingly, most of them tend to have a strong leader who is completely mission driven. Um, uh, that that that's not surprising, but it also, you know, I I would say we put a as a lot of places do that are that are in this kind of space a really strong premium on leadership because we're not saying. Um, micromanaging what they do. We don't want to micromanage what they do. We want to find the people who know what they're doing and are really good at it, give them money and say, here, you, you, you do that thing that you do <laughs> rather than give them a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I'd say that's the commonality is we're less looking at uh, the one that's going to produce the terrific uh, grant report that shows all the bells that got rung and a lot more about you meet and know the person and you know that they're that they're doing a great job and then you put your faith and money in them you have come across yeah and that's uh, that uh, it raises a question with me that i've never asked somebody in your position so i'm going to ask you now you come back there's an organization it's got a great mission it's in a good place it's got potential you think and it's got a crappy leader uh, it just, yeah. Somebody turns people off or isn't energetic, um, just doesn't get it. Somebody majors in the minors, that sort of thing. You ever find yourself talking to a board member, you know, uh, for an organization like that in you know, a back channel conversation um, about, hey, we'd love to invest in you, but we invest in strong leaders and you don't have one right now. Has that ever happened or do you just kind of wait and be patient? Uh, that, that's a, that is such an interesting question. And that's something that we actually talk about internally a lot, uh, all the time. And I'm sure all foundations do too, but I I think that we, and and I'm not proud of this. I think that we, and most foundations tend to do the latter of the two models you talked about. Like I, I would find it hubristic to go to a, a board member and say, I, I don't think right. your person is doing a good job. I know that people do that. And maybe that's, maybe that's like really good leadership. And I'm just too much of a saw. Like I, I, I would find that that's not appropriate. I would find that that would be like presumptuous because uh, they're the trustees for that organization. I could provide feedback. A lot of the feedback I think that comes through this is market feedback. The market feedback is, we're not raising money. I mean, and again, um, m- raising money is, it's a proxy, but it's kind of a loose proxy for how good you're doing. I mean, some people are fantastic, as you know, some people are fantastic fundraisers, but they're more talk than do. Um, but that, that over time is a pretty good proxy, you know, like our fundraising's down because people aren't excited about our leadership. And, and, and the opposite is certainly true. You bring in somebody who is a dynamic leader who attracts funding, you know, that that's the market talking too. So I think we, we kind of, I guess, humbly see ourselves as part of the market more than as responsible for 
reaching in and managing other organizations. Yeah, I think you're right. That could definitely be seen as intrusive unless you had a really strong personal relationship with a board member or something and you could um, deliver that kind of feedback in a, in a way where it would be received as, as helpful and not as uh, uh, needlessly intrusive. Yeah, and I wonder if there's also probably like like you know in the real world intermediary steps between saying nothing and saying look you got to fire this guy. There's probably ways where you kind of um, indicate like yeah you know how we used to give uh, we're just not you know not 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 feeling as much for where the direction you're going right now or uh, like oh wait you don't like the direction like that that there's probably ways to provide feedback that send the message that are not as arrogant. What's uh? You have these three particular spaces you you work in, and you can talk about any one of them or all of them with this question. But so you have you have Catholic Ed, you have Human Services, you have um, the kind of culture and civic life. What's exciting you these days? Like, is there something that's come under your radar last year or two? It can be something specific or a more general trend. Sure. Uh, and then what's worrying you? Does- well, can I cheat a little bit and say it's the same thing? Yes. Which is, uh, uh, you know, I we, we we one of our categories, as you said, is uh, culture and civic life. And culture is pretty easy for us to understand. We're a local foundation. So local theater, local art museums. Philadelphia is blessed with a lot of cultural things. Like that's – and then how do you connect it to the other two? Uh, obviously, connect it with – poor and underserved communities connected with students in these, in these Catholic schools. So that, that, that like clicks really easily civic. Oh, so I, I was always troubled by like, well, how does, I mean, that, could that be anything? I mean, what, what, you know, so, so in doing the strategic plan, we tried to fo- like narrow it, focus it, make it mean one thing that everybody could understand. Remember, like we we're talking before about donor intent and mission. And so the thing that we really came up with is civics education, obviously, uh, the U.S. started here in Philadelphia. There's lots of uh, teaching institutions and cultural institutions that are, you know, National Constitution Center, Museum of the American Revolution, Valley Forge. There's so many things here that are great teaching tools for for this region about civics and, and civics education. So anyway, that that's the thing that we really latched onto. And to answer the first part of your question, that was the thing that we were really excited about. We just started about a year or two ago. It's going to be a new area for us. Uh, John and Josephine Conley were very patriotic people. They really cared both about this region and they were very patriotic about this country. So, and we tie that to educate like, oh, wow, that, okay, that really clicks. on, on that really, So that was what we were really excited about. At the same time, that's the thing that I'm the most worried about, which is, you know, it's funny, Jeremy. I think some of our trustees, uh, when we were pushing this through the strategic plan, you know, they were all positive about, and some were very enthusiastic, but some I could tell were sort of like, well, this is Tom's thing, or, you know, this is something that he cares about. Okay, okay, you know, it fits, so okay. Nobody doesn't think that this is really important now. <laughs> After the last six months, yeah. everybody goes, civics education yeah. is really important. <laughs> We've really right. lost out on civics education in this country. So um, it's funny. Now I might be finding the right partners for you to do that with. It's, it's so much easier now. I talk to everybody, uh, left, right, center, people who have never been in the space before. I don't finish the first sentence. And they're like, yeah, please count us in. <laughs> <laughs> So this is this is a and the reason that people are flocking to it is because it's a crisis. Just turn on the TV, look at the look at your social media. The uh, it, it, civics education in this country right now is at uh, uh, we are now reaping the fruit of not having taken it seriously for a generation or two, and it is it is a big deal. It does make support for this program a lot easier, and it is going to make it a lot easier to have partnerships uh, working on it. That's fantastic. Uh, that's a great answer. Well, last question for you, Tom, before I let you go. You have a um, the next John and Josephine Connolly come to you. They, they, they've made money in the box industry and in the can industry. And uh, uh, they want your advice. Uh, should they start a foundation? Is that what you should do today? Or do you just do a donor advice fund or something like that or something with your community foundation? And if I start it, what's what's the one or two things I need to make sure I, I don't get wrong or that I make sure I get right? Um, I love donor advised funds; they're fantastic. I know that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of con- con- there's a lot of critics who are uh, um, threatening uh, the autonomy of donor advised funds right now. So I think it's fantastic. I might be a little cautious, and if they had enough money, I might do a foundation. But I what I would 
super strongly recommend to them is that it have a spend a very specific unavoidable spend down component, a limited lifespan. Um, and you know, uh, it's one of those things too, that that really should come from the donor. If it doesn't come from the donor, it's quite unlikely to come from their children. And then once it's beyond that, it's never going to happen. So if you never, don't, it's not going to happen. Nobody ever says like, Hey, how about we get rid of our job? You know, this job that we love, that we all love doing, and you know, this board, we all love being on. How about we make it go away? Nobody's going to do that. And perpetuity is a long time. <laughs> so, so uh, the thing is, if you don't choose to spend down, if you don't make it rock solid, that's what you're doing. It's not going to happen. So, you, and you want it to happen because, look, I mean, again, going back to your initial part about humility, five hundred years from now, this pile of money might still exist. But the purpose is that you you can't possibly anticipate what purposes it's going to be spent on and who's going to be spending it that long from now. It's just not, or, or whether any of its purposes are even relevant anymore. Why not try to get some impact and some, some reach of your own that would be people that you might know, or at least the children of people you might know. Pick a, pick a period of time. I don't care whether it's five years, 15 years, or a hundred years, but some specific period of time and make it ironclad that it has to get spent by then. The second thing I would do is uh, uh, advise them is be incredibly specific about your mission and what your goals are. Go for the nursing colleges in the state of New York. Do not have some broad aspirational thing that everybody can agree. And you know, Jeremy, you've seen it many times. Um, a lot of that gets picked almost defensively, like, well, if we're really specific, that that's not going to interest junior or my granddaughter really wants. So let, let's avoid the unpleasant conversations and make it as broad as possible. If you avoid the unpleasant conversations, they're going to happen. It's just that they're going to be worse and they're going to be with lawyers. You know, so just do it. Do, do, do you know, you, you spend any favors by not having the unpleasant. Not, you think you are, but you're not. And being clear with them now is incredibly helpful to them later. And even if they don't like that conversation, it, 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 it's, it's way better for you to have, be courageous right now. You, you spend all that time and effort making the money, spend a little bit of uh, sweat, on how it, what's going to wind up happening, happening to it. That is uh, Tom, wonderful wisdom uh, and a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Jeremy, always, always a pleasure to talk with you. Connolly Foundation is online. This is C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y-F-D-N.org if you want to know more about the Connolly Foundation and Tom's work. And thank you very much. We will talk to everybody soon. Thank you. Thank you.